Welcome to the Real Birth Podcast, the show where real parents share real birth stories and get really honest about how it went. You might be a first-time expectant parent, or on your eighth baby. Perhaps you're a birth worker, or maybe you just love learning about birth. Whoever you are, you are welcome here. This podcast aims to educate and empower listeners through the real stories of mums and dads. I'm Lucy Hill. I'm a doula, a mum of a toddler, and a complete birth nerd. Join me as I invite all kinds of parents to share their stories of pregnancy, birth, and beyond. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Real Birth Podcast. Today I'm joined by Emma, a hypnotherapist living in Wiltshire. Emma's son Ted was born with cerebral palsy nine years ago, caused by oxygen deprivation during labour, which was later deemed to be a result of mistakes made by medical staff taking care of her. Emma shares her emotional and courageous story of having a baby with extremely complex medical needs and how she has processed the fact that the hospital trust admitted full responsibility for what happened. She also tells us about the calm water birth of her daughter Dilly just a few years later, which she describes as incredibly healing and just what she needed after her first experience. I will preface this episode by saying that our conversation is raw, it's real, and it contains some content which you might find upsetting. I think it's very important to share all birth stories with all kinds of outcomes so that people who share experiences know that they're not alone. However, if you're in a place where you feel like you're not able to engage with this one, or if it might not be the right time for you to listen, then that's absolutely okay. Press pause, come back another time. This episode isn't here to scare you, it's here to inform and educate you. In fact, Emma's wonderful reflections and her attitude to her experiences is nothing short of inspiring. Huge thank you to Emma for sharing with us today. Here's Emma's story. Well, hi, Emma. Thank you very, very much for reaching out and um, submitting your birth stories. I believe you have two. Before we kick off with your pregnancy and birth stories, could you tell us a little bit about you and your family? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name's Emma Haynes. I live, uh, I currently live in Warminster um, in Wiltshire with uh, my husband, Rick, and my two children, Ted, who's nine, and Dilly, who is six. And I am a hypnotherapist. Oh, that's really interesting. My son Ted uh, has cerebral palsy, so he has quite quite significant um, needs. So I need something that's very flexible and and to be um, around for him a lot. For your first pregnancy, could you tell us what was the journey to becoming pregnant? How did that go for you? Were you did you kind of plan to conceive when you did? Yeah, do you know what? <laughs> it's slightly ironically because the aftermath of the birth and and the things we'll come on to later I had the most kind of textbook perfect pregnancy I think we got pregnant on the first try I'd I'd made a new year's resolution that that year I wanted to write a book have a baby I can't remember what the other one was but the two out of three came true I remember so I remember being at a new year's eve party and someone being like well don't you mean conceive a baby because to you know have have a baby I don't know if you'll manage that within a year uh, but we, yeah, we got pregnant on the first try in that January, I think. So yeah, Ted was born in the October and yeah, it was just like completely uneventful. I had quite a lot of morning sickness up until, or nausea more than morning sickness up until about 16, maybe 20 weeks. But that mm. was, you know, there was, there were no, it was a low risk pregnancy. I had nothing more than kind of swollen ankles to, 
to moan about really everything was fine thinking about your ideas of birth like did you kind of have any preconceived ideas of what you thought birth was and did they did they change as you kind of looked at what you were planning for your own birth I was always very keen on having a home birth I was sort of quite wary of the medicalization of birth and um, I wanted to have the most natural birth possible I suppose I did have a bit of a a block around sort of hospitals and interventions and and I suppose the way that especially with a first birth it felt like one intervention such as induction might not be particularly effective and then that leads to much more and you might be in labor for a long time and then you have a a c-section and you know it kind of without sounding like all those things are wrong I don't Mm. mean those things are wrong at all that's just sort of not not what I want I wanted a very hands-off birthing experience Mm. I suppose there was a very experienced dedicated home birth team attached to I lived in London at the time um attached to King's College Hospital in South East London so I was like I knew I wanted to be on their caseload I didn't do NCT that a lot of people do. I, I do wish I'd done hypnobirthing actually for that one, but mm. that's a, a, another <laughs> story. But um, yeah. I think I thought of birth as a lot of like mind over matter in, in some ways. And actually with the, I think that was quite naive now, by the way, mm. but, um, you know, with the kind of right attitude to it, it was just almost like a physical challenge that to be overcome and I could do that. And I had mm. the tools to do that is how I felt I'm not sure if that's actually true now when I look back on it. Um, I, th- I think it depends on on the birth, you know, and sometimes sometimes it's luck. You know, sometimes it is a mind yeah. over matter thing because everything's totally straightforward. And sometimes a card gets pulled and you just think, wow, I didn't know that could happen. So you had planned a home birth with a really well-known kind of home birthing caseload team. How did the kind of very, very end of your pregnancy go in those kind of final few days and weeks and did you go into labour spontaneously? Yes I did I ended up being about 10 days overdue I think so I was due on the 25th of September and my lovely midwife who had supported me throughout my whole pregnancy was on holiday (laughs) starting I think the 25th of September for two weeks (laughs) yeah so that was a bit like oh right you know you're not going to be there for me amazing how much you forget in nine years I've just remembered that um that was another reason why I wanted to go with with this team so that there was a continuity of care rather than just like seeing a different midwife for every appointment and then you know not knowing who you're going to get which at the time I think because it was my first birth felt very important to me but actually as it happened my (laughs) my midwife was on holiday so I had midwives who I I didn't know um so yeah I went sort of 10 days overdue so I'd sort of gone into the hospital and and um met with the uh head of obstetrics and he was sort of saying you know actually I'm quite I am quite relaxed you know explain the risks of going overdue and I suppose I was I was older I was 34 maybe so yeah, he kind of was was saying, you know, I, I I will let you go up to maybe two weeks, and then, you know, and you can come in and you can do things like, um, you know, you can come in and have extra scans and just check that there's good blood blood flow and and all of that kind of thing. And so I, it was a Saturday night, and I did, you know, my waters broke. I kind of felt a bit twitchy and a bit sort of uneasy. I'd done a big long walk that day, and then yeah, we were watching a film, and then I was like, oh, hang on waters have gone 
and then nothing really happened like with hindsight I would have done things so so differently to be honest like I think I, I went to the spare room I was like right I, I think you know my husband and I we should we should have like um separate rooms tonight I want to like make sure that you know we're both have like a good night's sleep I feel like I might disturb you all night but I think we need to be like really well rested before the birth starts whereas actually if I had my time again I'd be like right this is the final night that's kind <laughs> of you know the two of us we should be much more together and mm. um so I don't think I even really slept at all I remember sort of feeling like like actually I didn't really know what was coming for me and I didn't know what to do and I, I'm the kind of person that I like to know what I'm supposed to do like as a child I would never if I if I didn't know that I was going to be kind of good and competent at something before I did it I, I wouldn't start if that makes mm-hmm. sense like I, I need to know where I am and so I, I did feel quite out of my depth when it yeah. came even though I you know I'd read books and I'd done some classes and I I knew it would be hours and uh, I don't know I don't think any, I don't think any amount of reading and classes and talking to people can prepare you for, for that experience it's... No, and it's so different for each person you know some people their waters break and bam they're in it that's it and for some people it's it's really boring so yeah. did you start to feel any kind of twinges or contractions coming throughout the night or did it take longer than that to get going yeah no I think I did feel a bit but not not much and I think I must have just had so much adrenaline like in my in my system and then so then we we called the midwives in the morning I think we let them know my water had broken in the, in the evening just you know just as a heads up not not that I thought they needed to come round or anything and you know they asked me some questions about the color of the water and that kind of thing I guess just to check that there was nothing to be concerned about yeah sort of called them again in the morning but but I think being in a very I could have left it so much longer you know I was just sort of like I felt like I needed someone there even though I then just felt really awkward having someone else in my head. I barely even spoke to her you know I found it really awkward having someone else in my flat and me just thinking I don't know what I'm doing and it was I just remember feeling very much like I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing am I just sitting here waiting like could I go for a walk and I, I can imagine why it took a long time like when I look back on it now I feel like I was very tense and very like holding on to like oh I just I don't know what I'm supposed to do and, and even like I was like oh, I don't even know if I'm supposed to ask do I ask for gas and air what have I, I never even went and asked for gas and air at some point I assume things evened out to a point where you realized okay then I'm actually in labor now this is regular this is consistent it was sort of a long a long day cooped up in my little flat feeling quite hot and quite sick I'd been quite sick all day um which I I was sort of fine about my mum you know the the midwife kept trying to make me eat things but I just couldn't keep anything down I know that was true for my mum too so I was like oh this is just what happens and then it was around sort of shift changeover I think she had been there the midwife that was with us had been there since like eight o'clock in the morning and then I think I think around five or six maybe there was a, a changeover and two midwives came and then that was the point that I kind of went into the more active mm-hmm. labor is that what it's called when you're in the yeah stage? <laughs> um, well I mean it's for active labor is anything from they say four centimeters dilated onwards but I think a lot of midwives will just look at you and go you're an act of labor or you're not although I have to say I've heard a lot of stories of people who've been so relaxed whether that's because of hypnobirthing or whatever it is 
that there's almost that no you're not in active labor and people are like yeah you know how could you possibly be in labor you're it's obviously not hurting you enough okay so you had this shift change and it sort of coincided with you feeling like you were really in the throes of it yes but I mean I I, what I found particularly hard about that labor actually is that when I was around five centimeters like if I had been on my own in a cottage somewhere or in a field you know whatever like the when we talk about oh women know exactly what to do when they give birth in the fields they'd be doing this if I was left to my own devices I would have been pushing up five centimeters that's what I felt really I found it very tricky you know I had that sense of like really needing to sort of bear down and it's like you can't push you're only five centimeters and I found that very difficult it was like I was resisting for a long time what my body actually wanted to do and so finally yes several hours later I was then allowed to to push and so and and that that part of the labor I really really enjoyed and you know it was like oh you know I've thank goodness I can get into it now I've got something to do instead of just sitting there going oh I'm just gonna resist this urge like oh and you know feeling like I was doing everything wrong so that was the turning point of quite enjoying it but but also at that point of the shift changeover so the the two midwives came in and they wanted to know you know what's gone on in the in the labor before and we had sort of talked about being because so there were two things that happened at that point sorry (laughs) one was that Ted was quite tachycardic okay so they were like oh baby's heart rate it's a bit of a thing going on with with his heart rate and I also remember them being like oh is that meconium now I know that if you see meconium you need to go to hospital immediately so I assumed that the answer was no that's not meconium because no one at that point suggested I went to hospital so then there was this kind of like, okay, well, you know, we might need to think about going to hospital, but actually what's happened, uh, but more about Ted's heart rate, to be honest, not the meconium. What's been happening in the labour? Oh, right, you've been very sick, you've been, you are quite hot, you know, you haven't, haven't taken on enough fluids, maybe you haven't gone to the loo, you know, just all of this stuff. Let's, let's put you in front of a fan, open the windows, drink a load of water, and if his heart rate stabilises, we're going to stay at home. You know, I'm like, great, fine, you know, that's good, it's all under control, and I don't have to go to hospital. But I just remember that being a discussion and, and, you know, letting the midwives do what I thought the midwives should be doing. I, I don't know what I'm doing. It's my first birth. I put my trust in them. So that was the decision we would stay at home. So then it was, you know, there was lots of trying different positions and pushing and sitting on the loo and being on the banister and you know, kind of really trying to get into, you know, but Ted just actually wasn't moving down. He really, you know, his head really didn't come down into that that crowning position. So I had been pushing for about like a, like a long time, a couple of hours, two and a half hours. And it's like, you know, he's really not moved down. I think we need to think about mm. going to hospital. And at that point, I got quite scared and was quite resistant to the idea mm. of going to hospital. I suppose it was just like, but I can do this. I don't, you know, I just, maybe I just need more time. I need more time. Maybe I just need a rest. So they let me have a bit of a rest. But really, you know, nothing, he just wasn't moving enough. So, so uh, yeah, the decision was made to move to the hospital. And were you far from the hospital? Was it an easy enough journey for you? No, I, I was close to the hospital. It was probably about maybe a mile away. But I, one of the reasons I was comfortable with a home birth is that 
I just thought actually I'm probably five minutes blue lighted but <laughs> this is so this is where it all starts well I don't know where it all starts to go a bit wrong probably started to go a bit wrong when they saw Ted's heart rate this <laughs> this is the story unfortunately of a catalogue of errors so when they saw the meconium and when Ted was tachycardic at like six o'clock or whatever it was he should have we should have been blue lighted to a hospital at that point. Then I was allowed to remain at home and push for a couple of hours. Then they allowed me another half an hour's grace while I was upset about going to the hospital and asking for a rest and stuff. Then they called an ambulance, but they didn't request that I was blue lighted to the hospital. Okay. And it was an incredibly busy night. So it was like, it was the Saturday, the 7th of October. Um, and it was just manic. I think the hospital, their birthing team was was really stretched. There was a lot going on. So one of the midwives went off to another birth and the other midwife said, do you mind if I drive my car to the hospital? Again, in hindsight, I wasn't, I'm much better at advocating for myself now. I was like, yeah, you can drive your car to the hospital. But then when I got in the ambulance, like, well, who's, who's monitoring me? Who's, because you're supposed to be monitored every 15 minutes. Mm by a Doppler when you're having a home birth so she got in her car and drove to the hospital and we drove to the hospital incredibly slowly because I was not blue lighted when we got to the hospital even though they'd called ahead they were sort of a bit like oh yeah um you know I don't know take there's a couple of rooms free go and take those rooms whichever one you want just let us know um so then we chose a room and there wasn't monitoring equipment there wasn't thing I mean it meanwhile so sorry to backtrack slightly so in the ambulance I was thinking right I've got like 15 minutes or whatever to just really push even harder and really try and get this this baby out and so yeah no one monitoring me I think between between leaving home and getting all properly set up in the hospital was probably about 45 minutes okay um that's no one monitoring Ted for 45 minutes so it sounds like everyone was quite relaxed in terms of no one was treating you like there was anything that you needed to worry about no there's no emergency there's no you know kind of uh, you know I'm sort of saying all this in in hindsight from everything I subsequently learned um but yeah it's like okay well this this is obviously fine there's no reason to be concerned like I wasn't even at that point I wasn't necessarily thinking I'm supposed to be monitored every 15 minutes I was just like I've got to get this baby out before they like come at me yeah. with forceps or something like uh, you know it's just ridiculous now when I think about it, it's not ridiculous but I was just so like I don't want any interventions but obviously interventions are there for a reason and that that's you know I, I have a very different view of interventions mm. but it's totally yeah. justified and reasonable for you as a first-time parent to think well this is something I don't want and at the moment, there's no reason for me to think I need any of that. So I'm going to stick to my guns. That's totally OK. So, yeah, I think also I'd seen a lot of friends go through this and come out the other side quite traumatised by really long labours and a string of interventions that eventually end in an emergency C-section and just feeling like nothing went the way they wanted. And actually, it was really traumatic. Mm. And it was like, I don't I don't want that. So you were kind of settled in at the hospital and what happened when you were there and you were in your room? I was on a monitor and I remember the registrar came in to see me and and I I could feel Ted had moved down quite a lot by then. He was saying, actually, yeah, he's really moved down. I think you just need a bit of help. I'm going to go and get a Vontuz. 
it'll be fine just just give you that just that you know you're getting a bit tired now a little bit of help so probably this is probably around the sort of four hour mark of of so if I started pushing around six it's about 10 o'clock at night and then so while he was off getting the Vontus Ted really started to crown and I, I remember kind of being uh kneeling up so they put the back of the bed up and I was sort of kneeling up and sort of facing over the back of the bed and managing to sort of really push him out myself and and I remember the registrar coming back and saying oh I thought that might happen right just um let's just get on with it kind of thing it's all a little bit blurry because I suppose partly the sort of position I was in and just you know and just I was just really in the zone and just like right it's you know it's finally happening so yeah pushed Ted out had this completely natural natural birth and then they had to, you know he was he was not in a good in a good way yeah they had to pull the emergency cord and you know it felt like hundreds of people rushed in it's probably about six but um and was it just you you and your husband um from your kind of team yeah yeah just the two of us um but even then I was thinking you know I'm not I've seen this happen so many times I've watched lots of you know one born every minute and um, I think I'd watched a, a program about community midwives just at the end of my pregnancy and it, you know you see that happen a lot someone just needs like a little bit of extra help um but yeah Ted did a lot yeah so they worked on him for quite a while um, and eventually sort of just had to whisk him off. I remember struggling to sort of get the, I was busy trying to birth the placenta and, and do that side of it. And then I just remember them shouting my name and I sort of looked up and there's a little wrapped up baby with a hat on. They just kind of literally like, there he is and just took him away. Yeah, so you had that briefest of seconds to see him. Yeah. Yeah. And so you probably are just there in a complete blur of, well, physically for me, this isn't over yet. You know, I've still got to do this work and my brain is over here. You know, where, you know, where's my baby? Was there any option for your husband to go with, with baby or was it a case of we just don't have the time or the luxury to offer you that at the moment I can't remember I think he just I think he just stayed with me I think they just really needed to to whip him off we'll come and tell you what's happening in a bit we were in a room I can't I can't remember whether we moved rooms or whether we just mm. tied, cleared up this room a bit and you know I was sort of then feeling quite woozy and quite sick I think I had a cup of tea and a, a biscuit but but at the same time I wasn't massively concerned at this point it was okay. all kind of like oh wow that was all a bit dramatic but I'm sure he'll be fine you know I know sometimes babies just need a bit of extra help and you know I didn't I I hadn't seen I know now that he was like blue and white and and floppy and you know really really in a poor state um but obviously I hadn't seen any of that so I I didn't I was just like oh you know it's fine just needs need some oxygen yeah Um, so yeah we sort of stayed and had a cup of tea and I was just sort of again just felt like I didn't really know what to do I would I didn't shower or have a bath or anything 
I was like covered in, in blood uh, and just was like, oh, yeah, it's fine. I, I just was, I just remember feeling really dazed, probably because I hadn't eaten all day or, and or, slept, or slept. Yeah, or slept. So then I sort of had a cup of tea and then just started to feel really, really sick. And so got, you know, had an injection of sort of anti sickness drugs. It made me really, really slurry. So it took quite a long time before they came down from the NICU. Someone came down from the NICU after a while. And I just remember being really annoyed because I was really slurring talking to him. And I thought, you know, I don't want to slur. Like, I'm I'm not out of it. I just, I can't really remember what, what he said to us. But he kind of mentioned that Ted had had oxygen deprivation and... We don't really know what that means and that can basically result in some complications. And I remember trying to say to him, you mean cerebral palsy? I have a a niece who has cerebral palsy. She was um, born very prematurely. So I knew what he was talking about. Even still, I was like, well, not me. That's not going to happen to us. Of course. It'll be fine. Like, I'm, I'm sure that does happen to some people. But so, yeah, it was just kind of, I don't know, quite quite a blur and quite a roller coaster. But I just remember thinking, it will all be fine. I think that's that's your kind of rational brain, isn't it? Just of course, of course it will be fine. Yeah. Um, and I am just generally a quite an optimistic person and just I just have always felt very kind of lucky and very looked after. And I don't know, it's just like mm. that's the kind of thing that happens to other people. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose so you know, one of the things that must be very difficult with something like oxygen deprivation is that there isn't really one clear cut way that this is going to go. It When yeah. you're in that fresh in the NICU, I imagine it's a time will tell situation. Is that what yeah. they were, is that what they essentially said to you? Yeah. Yeah. That's what they were saying. But they also said, look, he, you know, he, he needs some extra help. So he needs to go to St. Thomas's. So we're going to transfer him over there. Uh, they do a, a treatment called cooling where they, it's like a therapeutic hypothermia. So they sort of wrap you in a cooling blanket and um, drop your body temperature down for 72 hours, I think it is. So yeah, they were like, we need to, he needs that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we're going to transfer him over there. Okay. So they sort of brought him down in his little transport incubator. Because I was doing, I remember just being like, I don't even know what he looks like. I don't know what colour hair he's got. <laughs> just yeah. silly things that. Um, well, you that just take it, you just take it for granted, awful. don't you? Like that you'll see that. Yeah, because yeah, he was when they sort of took him off. He had a little hat on, and it was just like his tiny face. So it's like you know, I've got no idea what he looks like. I need to see him. So they brought him in to to go, and then Rick went with him. And then I was just left alone in the hospital with hardly any charge on my phone. And oh. you know, I, hadn't brought, I hadn't brought a phone charger or packed a hospital bag or, you know, done any of that really. So, um, yeah, moved to a ward of four people. And did those people have their babies with them? I can't remember. But what I do remember is the, I'll try not to swear, the bounty lady. Do, do they still oh, have Oh my God, yeah. Remember. Okay. What so this, really got me yeah. was was her like flinging open the curtain, congratulations, and giving me a bounty pet. And I just thought, I don't even know if my baby's still alive. Like, who the let you in here? Yeah. 
um, that that really. I don't know whether they do that anymore. Um, I think they don't, maybe. I don't remember that happening when I was in hospital. And I, I mean, I know that many, many hospital trusts will have some kind of non-verbal symbol. Um, you know, they will hang something on a door or, you know, whatever it might be, just to say there's an increased amount of sensitivity we need for this particular family. So that is just unbelievable that somebody was allowed to burst into your space. So did you give her a piece of your mind? I was just too shocked. I was okay. just like, I just took it and just... yeah just thought oh you know just at that point I'd had like two hours sleep I think and fitful yeah. fitful sleep and I just I I then sort of broke down on the, on the midwife yeah. um who was who was on the ward and she kind of gave me a big hug and yeah a bit yeah. of a understanding yeah. Yeah. so was there anybody who could come and give you a little bit of support while you while you were still there in the hospital or were you basically just waiting to be sent home yeah I was waiting I was waiting to be kind of discharged and I only had to I just remember thinking I've only got the tiniest amount of charge on my phone and then and then Rick called me from from the other hospital being like right you know this is happening so he's, he's having his cooling and also we need to decide whether we want to put him in a clinical trial um where they added in xenon gas um and God, what it was such a hard decision. How to make. do you make that decision? You're, you've had this information about your child for hours. You haven't processed yeah. it, and now you're being asked to decide. Wow. Yeah. And it, and it, I had to decide really quickly because of, of I guess, you know, just the time sensitive nature of the cooling and and doing it. Um, we did decide to put him through. It's that difficult thing, isn't it? Of like, do you just throw everything you possibly can at this situation? Is it a really bad idea? And, you know, I'll never know whether it made it any better or worse. Yeah. Well, I, I think he did get the gas. Because it was also like, well, you go in the trial, you might get the gas, you might not get the gas. I think he did have it. Yeah. I don't, uh, and we will never know whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> um so yeah so uh, and then he so Rick had asked his brother who is his family live up in sort of northwest London we were southeast and his, his brother came to collect me from from the hospital so that Rick could stay at Tommy's with Ted and so yeah Mike came to pick me up and we we went home and got you know I got showered and got some stuff and, mm. and then we went off to to the next hospital where I could properly yeah meet Ted and yeah you know, and so, I mean, obviously, this this is probably not, not in the forefront of your mind, but, you know, most people once, you know, just had their baby, it's kind of, oh, let's think about feeding. What was your, what had been your preference prior to this experience? And then what was the reality of, of feeding a baby? I wanted to breastfeed. I knew I would probably struggle because... All my sisters had struggled. My mum really struggled. My mum didn't really, I think maybe I, I'm the youngest of four. Maybe I got six weeks worth of milk, yeah. but we were all kind of formula fed. My mum, yeah, struggled. None of, uh, only one of my sisters breastfed 
and yeah the reality was very different you know it's kind of so so we go to the hospital and there's all this kind of you know stuff that you need to learn about like you know proper hand washing technique that we've all learned now in covid but anyone who's had a child in the NICU knows all about how you wash your hands so it, you know mm. it's all kind of and you know and you meet him and he's got this and like he's all like it's all bloated and like you still so even when he was in cooling and in, in the incubator we got to like change his nappies and you know hold his okay. hands and stuff but but yeah, so my introduction to feeding is, was like, right, you need to learn to hand express. It would just really help if you can provide him with, with your milk and some colostrum and like, let's get going on this. So you're sort of like hand expressing colostrum into like a tiny one mil syringe, yeah. <laughs> like holding the syringe and squeezing out drops um, and just filling as many little syringes as you can with that colostrum to give. And then you move on to, to pumping. So it was quite a full on introduction into, into it and just like, you know, it's not a particularly nice experience. And you've got to, you know, pump every sort of two hours to bring your milk in. You've got to wake up at 2am and do it. So, you know, going home from hospital without a baby and I still have to set an alarm and get up at two o'clock in the morning and because obviously it's important to just mimic what having a baby would be like so um, making sure you get those night feeds in and get as much milk flowing as possible and yeah that was fed to him through a tube and then um, oh yeah he was tube fed in hospital but yeah that was a pretty depressing thing especially yes. getting up in the morning yeah because you know you know like all, all my friends are you know I think we just thought yeah you know the baby's gonna wake and that's fine but that's also really nice bonding time and we're gonna watch some box sets in the middle of the night as we like mm-hmm. feed our baby and yeah and it's yeah. and it's all the kind of you know the production of milk as well is so tied to that oxytocin buzz which yeah. is like you said a bit depressing um to not have yeah that. Exactly. So I'm sort of, you know, looking at photos of, of Ted and yeah, trying yeah. to kind of get that, get that oxytocin flowing and um, just, I mean, I'm quite a sort of determined person. So it's like, right, I will do this. I will get up at 2am. And I remember one night I slept through and Mr. Feed and I just felt so, Mr. Pump felt so guilty about that. Oh, have I ruined it all? You know, I just, yeah. I can do this. This is one thing I can do, but it wasn't a great experience. Mm. What happened after the cooling therapy? So after the cooling, so that happens for about three days and then um, then you're sort of slowly rewarmed. And, and on that first day, he Ted was having a lot of seizures, um, lots and lots of continual um, seizures. So he had a bit of uh, phenobarbital, a bit like seizure medication. Um, and then... Um, after another couple of days, you need to have an MRI basically to work out what damage has been sustained. And yeah, you know, the, the MRI showed quite a lot of damage. I mean, I don't know whether they didn't say much to us because we didn't ask many questions or whether we had quite a good team I feel like some people were told very very negative things about their child's prognosis and you know what uh what to expect but our team were very much like look you know there's there's pretty extensive damage but we don't really know what that means that might mean you know it looks like he's going to have trouble with kind of movement and learning but 
you know, we just don't know because occasionally you'll see babies with horrible damage who go on to seem absolutely fine, or you see people who don't have a great deal of damage but present in a, you know, ha have quite a lot of difficulty. So we can't actually make any predictions. And I didn't question that because it's like, I don't want to know. Mm. No. But in some ways, that sounds like great that nobody was putting him in a box and telling yeah. you the way it was going to be. But at the yes. same time, you've got no parameters then of what maybe could happen. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it was hard, like wait and see is the thing that you just get told all the time. And sort of I think after he left hospital, I, I would have liked a bit more of an idea of how things were going to pan out. But but I knew that they couldn't really tell me that. But and I did also remember thinking I'm not going to ask I don't want to ask many questions because I, I don't want to know the worst case scenario. I just, yeah. I'm just going to let Ted develop as he's going to develop. But yes, I definitely went through times of thinking, well, I just kind of, I want to know what it's going to look like when he's five. <laughs> you know, I wanted to project that far. I just like, I just want to know what I'm dealing with. Well, it's like, take, it kind of goes back to that comment of when you were first in labor of, I need to know what I'm doing here so that I can make sure I'm good at it and tick the boxes and, it's just yeah. a super amplified version of that. Yeah, that's really true. That's really true. So yeah, wait and see became an extremely mm. kind of uh, annoying Annoying phrase. mantra. How long did you need to stay uh, kind of very near hospital care? And at what point did, did baby come home? He was there for about four weeks. So we, we, we were lucky in that we, we could go back to our flat and just travel in every day. But yeah, he was there for about four weeks. And so he had lots of, you know, it was, it was clear, especially to the nurses, I remember, uh, that, you know, Ted was going to have a lot of difficulty. You know, they've obviously seen it a lot before. And I, I just sort of didn't want to, to know. I remember kind of getting some really knowing looks from some nurses and just like a bit like, are you understanding what people are saying to you? About, I think it was about something to do with reflux, I think. And I just remember thinking just stop looking at me like that you don't know what his future is going to hold and I, I found that really difficult but yeah you know he had to, every time the physio would come and be like, he's quite stiff isn't he quite stiff limbs so he had like very stiff limbs he didn't want to feed it, it, you know he found it very difficult to feed so he had an NG tube and it was really hard to get him to take a bottle I had I tried to breastfeed him but he was just not not getting it at all and I think for the night staff, he would just like cry all night, um, which I think is another another sign of neurological damage. You know, mm. there's just that like, quite inconsolable crying. But, you know, as is completely understandable when you've had a massive brain injury. You know, yes. Yeah. Kind of hurt, I imagine. And, you know, it's sort of you have digestive problems because, you know, blood flow to your organs and things. And he had a little bit of initial sort of uh, kidney failure and things but nothing that mm. produced lasting damage so that was good but and it got to the point then where I was like going into hospital every day and just sort of sitting there with him and like sitting there and pumping and struggling to feed him and it's like can I not just do this at home yeah. I would be a lot more comfortable I don't I didn't see it at, you know after a few weeks like, I don't see what what I'm getting here this is yeah. just really horrible and it feels like my baby doesn't belong to me it feels like he belongs to the hospital and to a system mm. whereas actually he's mine and I want to take him home so then they allow you to do um I think do we stay two nights there's like a parent room where you sort of stay next to the 
special care unit um so you're sort of taking care of mm. of your baby but you know that they're next door which was handy because he would like pull out his ng tube at two in the morning or something yeah. so you kind of did need the nurses there but yeah essentially you're you're getting a taste of taking care of him and then like before you can go home you have to you know they you have to sort of do a bit of a mini first aid and they you know show you about choking and yeah and all things that you really wouldn't normally do if you're if you're giving no. birth at home or, or you know in a hospital you don't have to do a first aid course before you take your your yeah. child home so again that just added up to that sense of like does he actually belong to me or is he like yours and you're just loaning him to me for a while yeah. so it took a lot quite a long time to not feel a bit sort of institutionalized and you know like he it, it was yeah quite it was a very strange start to life yeah for both of you yeah yeah exactly so you're home with him um yeah. you know this is sort of the second start and at that point I mean this is obviously incredibly difficult to think about the causation of mm. of what's happened is that something that was looked into I mean or was it something that you had to question or did you I didn't question it at first I remember sort of saying to the hospital I want like I want to come in and just like have a birth review because my memory of everything was so hazy and I just it wasn't that I needed answers about anything particularly I thought it's just one of those things I know that this stuff happens it's just one of those things but I would like to know I just want a clear almost like to so I could almost have a clear memory of that night so it's like what yeah want to sort of formulate a memory of it if that makes sense and so we went in maybe in the January I can't remember went, went to see them anyway they were like yeah come come we'll do a sort of review I remember going in and the the obstetric consultant was like visibly shaken uh, and looked very sort of somber you know was just like we've, we've you know we've done a serious incident review and um although we'll never know sort of how how these things pan out at the same time it does seem like actually there were quite a few delays that maybe added up to what happened and so we were like okay and sort of you know he gave us a he gave us a copy of said you know you can have a copy of it to read and everything and you know was was apologetic was like so we came out of there and went for a coffee across the road and we were like was he basically saying that they have this is their fault I think we need to sue the hospital yeah. um and, and that you know that in itself was a shock it was like oh yeah because that was probably the first time oh. you thought in your mind actually maybe there's something that that contributed to this yeah exactly yeah. I had never I had never at any point thought they had done anything wrong and it made sense that I remember when I looked back it was like oh every time I saw the midwife that had you know been with us and, and gone to the hospital with us I now realize she looked guilty like as in like oh god I've done you know I I'm right. kind of responsible you know she'd give me this look a bit like I suppose if <laughs> the kind of look that if your best friend was like cheating on you with your husband they'd give that you know you can see it in someone's yeah. face like there was a look that she would give me and I then was like she knew at that point that she had cocked up and I understand what that look was now that I thought it was sympathy. And now I realise it's guilt. You know, when you're just like, oh, my God, I've just I've done something terrible. And I feel so this person doesn't realise. Yeah. And I'm 
I do. So, but I imagine yeah. they probably weren't able to really say anything while any sort no. of investigation was happening. And I mean, you're then in a position where everything that you've kind of had as your narrative of what's happened has suddenly mm. got this very different filter on it. And you're looking yeah. back and going, oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And it was like, okay, well, what do we do? And I remember thinking, oh God, I don't, I don't, I love the NHS. I don't want to sue the NHS. Mm. The NHS is on its knees. You know, this is like nine years ago. And even then it was like, it's on its knees. Yeah. I can't, can't take money from it. But so we got a copy of the serious incident report and, you know, thought, okay, well, we'll take it to some law firms and we'll just see, you know, because they'll be able to say whether we've got a case or not. Yeah. Um, and actually even going through that is a very strange experience because it's horrible suing someone like nobody ever wants to be in a position where they have to do that no exactly I I had a sort of almost moral dilemma about it even though I now know that they have insurance for this and it's not like I'm directly funneling money out of the the hospital but but then also it's like actually my my son is extremely physically disabled and will need he needs 24 7 care and will do for his entire life and actually if there is something that can make that process easier and, then you, I and need you, you don't know 5 10 15 years what you might have to buy and no, you don't know so we, we went to see two or three law firms and um yeah they they were all <laughs> they were all willing to take our case and also okay. having looked at the serious incident report everyone was like I'll offer you a no win no win no fee Right. which now I'm like of course they knew it was you know yes. they didn't see what a kind of cut and dried case it was because it's it's a lot of work getting all the kind of medical notes and sort of looking yeah. at that and you kind of start off and you get a consultant midwife and a consultant radiologist and people to look at that it's so even when you're deciding are we going to move forward with this as a case that takes quite a long time mm. if they're saying no win no fee I think they can see they can be confident yeah. so so did you just you decided to take that forward I assume you were successful with yes. your case yeah. And, yeah. and there was no um it's a it is a very long process even though ours was very straightforward so right. after about two years so it takes it takes you Gosh. get all the medical records and then you sort of formulate your case and then you write to the NHS trust and say you sort of put your case to them we've got this case against you we think this is going to happen they, they asked for a slight extension in replying and then they came back and were like, yeah, we admit full liability. And then you kind of go into a litigation mm. where you essentially build your case. But there was there was no dragging their feet. There was no like, no, we're not, you know, we're going to fight you on this. It was just like, yeah, we are completely at fault. And how, how did that feel to have somebody say that? <laughs> well. A mix, I imagine. I, yeah. <laughs> ironically it was um not ironically but the timing of it so I, I got the phone call from the lawyers to say that they'd admitted liability when Dilly was three days old so you know that kind of like milk coming in super that's, the <laughs> that's the day that's the day that's the day yeah and we got that that call so there was kind of almost a serendipity about it maybe mm. but it was like god of all the days <laughs> I suppose it was a relief it's a relief to think, okay, we're going to have, because money does make life easier when you've got a disability. Everything is so expensive. As brilliant as the NHS is, it's also very quite one size fits all. 
it's a lot of fighting for what you need and so you know it's a big relief to think if we need to step outside that system we'll have financial yeah. financial ability to do that we can have equipment that suits ted not well they're not our suppliers we yes yeah provide that you know, all of that kind of stuff and then of course also anger that you're ever in that situation anger that someone yeah did change the course of all of our lives yeah so that was I think it was about three when that happened and then it was another I don't know how many years before we actually settled it takes a right. long time yeah. to sort of build your case and then you go through a horrible process of you being like this is this is what we need and then being like you don't need that he's not like that at the end of it all you've been able to get what you needed from it yes yeah and yeah. you know I, I do feel very privileged to to have that even though someone's at fault and you know in that sense it's the right thing but at the same time it's kind of it's also the very best outcome because there are people who this happens to and it's not anyone's fault and and therefore they are mm. sort of in the system and and life is much much harder than it ever needs to be and and there are people who maybe someone's at fault and they can't prove it and I am so appreciative of the stresses it takes away from us it enables yes. to us live a normal family life whatever that is but you know we can focus on happy things instead of fighting for stuff fighting all the time yeah oh I just can't tell you how appreciative I am for you sharing this with us because I just don't think people hear stories often enough Mm. about all all sorts of birth situations but and not just the nitty-gritty of what happens but how do families process those things yeah, I just, I just think it's really important. So I'm really, really grateful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you wanted to share a, a kind of overview of, of your second pregnancy and birth, everything that you've, you've been through with your first experience. How, how did you approach kind of the next kind of chapter of your family and adding another baby? How did that go for you? Well, I think we always knew we wanted two or, or three, maybe. So I think it, it what happened with Ted did maybe sort of extend the time between trying again uh, a little longer than we wanted. I probably would have tried a bit more quickly just because I was already in my mid-30s. <laughs> again, a very similar thing happened. I felt pregnant at a very similar time of year, not long afterwards, started trying. So they're both October babies. I think Dilly was actually due on Ted's birthday. Oh, wow. <laughs> again, I went overdue. I had a very again very easy I was more sick with Dilly but a very easy pregnancy no complications Mm. I was quite anxious I think I was more anxious than I realized I was Mm. but I also knew what to expect which was helpful I knew that what had happened to me was very unlikely to happen again made sure that I got in touch with the mental health teams and sort of flagged up my story to them and was like I feel okay now but I might need some support and they you know they were quite quite open to that but I didn't really end up calling on them and this time I was like I'm definitely doing hypnobirthing (laughs) because I a couple of friends had done it and had very easy births and I regretted not doing it the first time and I just thought actually it will be really beneficial for my anxiety and I knew at that point yeah how much like anxiety feeds into how you birth Mm. if you're very anxious it does slow stuff down and I just thought right but I was also very keen I was keen to have another natural birth but I was also keen on options so I kind of 
so where I live in Warminster, you, I'm like equidistant between the RUH hospital in Bath and yeah. in Salisbury. So I didn't want another home birth just because I'm so far from a hospital. Yeah. I didn't particularly want a hospital birth, but yeah, it, it, I didn't feel like there was any other option. And I went to see a consultant in Bath and then I swapped to Salisbury because I just, <laughs> she was not helpful at all. She was so strange. I went to see her and she, I walked in and then, well, no, I, she kept me waiting for it. And then she came in and she went, oh, hi. Oh, you're unattractive, Emma. As if like all people called Emma are really ugly. It was just it was a really weird opening that comment. That is a weird comment. It's like either you're saying all Emmas apart from you are gross or she was kind of hitting on you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't, I don't think it was that. I mean, maybe she's in her fifties and I don't know. <laughs> Can we talk about my healthcare now? (laughs) She was really like, she just didn't really didn't have any sympathy at all. Um, It was kind of a bit like, you know, you just need to kind of get on it and, you know, let, let, I'm not going to offer you a C-section because you don't need it. Basically, you know, when you have your first child, you do like 30% damage to your pelvic floor. Second time, it's like 2%. You've you've basically done all the damage. (laughs) This baby is going to come right out. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing slightly but it was just like right okay not that I wanted an elective c-section but I wanted that to be on the table I was going to actually ask that question about did somebody offer you a birth that kind of took away all of those potential triggers from from your last experience whereby you know there's none of this none of the kind of labor none of the monitoring none of the pushing you know all those things that could take you right back there you'd expect that to be on offer yeah exactly so when she had sort of said this and was just like just really like that's in the past just need to stop worrying about that and just look to the future and I just remember sitting there being like well perhaps if you know if my child didn't have quadriplegic cerebral palsy and was non-verbal and you know like all all of this stuff I've got an incredibly disabled child who was a daily physical reminder of this perhaps if everything had panned out and you know Ted had no damage and everything was fine then yes perhaps I could just forget about it <laughs> but it was like well, yeah no I'm not going to because you are showing no sensitivity at all so I went to Salisbury Hospital and um the consultant there he was brilliant you know he was like I'm not concerned about your your age my sister-in-law is 40 and she's you know having her baby um you know I'm I'm totally fine with that you know that's all good if you want a c-section I will do that for you and he he just went through everything he's like right inductions you might find that you know uh, you know inductions are terrible for a first birth but they're really quite effective for a second birth so you know we've got a couple of ways that we can induce you if you wanted to do that you could have a slightly early induction I, you know we, you can have an elective c-section if you want one I would totally understand why you might want one and I was like I, I don't really but it was just the fact that he gave me options and it's like you don't have to decide now if you just freak out really near the end and think you want that, that's fine. I can do that for you. We can put in extra monitoring. You can have extra scans just so that, you know, we really know that the baby's in the optimum position. Mm. Make sure that, you know, there's not going to be any sort of unforeseen like just, surprises. Just gives you just, breathing space, doesn't it? To say, oh, thank you. know, Someone's listening. I, I can do what I need to do and it's okay. Yeah. And he understands and he, he gets it and he, he can see where, my anxieties might come from and it was a much more medical approach than I wanted but I felt reassured that that was there in the background if I needed it so I was really pleased that I had decided to 
to birth at, at that's Salisbury. That's um, great. And I did have like a couple of incidents in the pregnancy where I just thought, oh, actually, I don't know if I felt her move for ages. So I, you know, went in for extra monitoring and yeah. just, yeah, a couple of times when I did just have a <laughs> real kind of few yeah. moments of panic. Because also, yeah, I'd, I just amassed all this knowledge and I knew about, you know, reduced kicks and uh, all, all of those things that we all should know about. And I knew yeah. that if I was thinking I hadn't felt her for a while, that you can't just sit at home. And no, it's like as soon as you have that thing, oh, shall I go and get checked? It's like, there is yeah. no other answer, is there, than just, exactly. yeah, okay. I, I remember doing it a couple of times and feeling like I was wasting someone's time, but then I thought, they are never, ever going to think I'm wasting their time. No. Ever. No, exactly. Go in there a couple of a couple of times, um, and that was fine, and, yeah, I had some extra scans and stuff, and then... Um, and then yeah, had had a completely, completely different experience of I again had gone 10 days over, I think. And um, so they booked me in for an induction. I sort of thought that maybe my waters had broke the night before, but not there was only like a small amount. And so I I sort of tried, I remember calling them in the morning, tried not to go in for the induction. And they were like, you need to, you really <laughs> do need to come in. We'll just give you a bit of monitoring. And we went and they were like, Have you, have you been feeding lightnings on? I'm like, no. You really are having contractions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, oh really? I have I like literally haven't felt a thing. So I don't know whether again that was like the hypnobirthing or whether I'm just really unobservant, but I certainly wasn't feeling anything. So um they were like, right, go and have some lunch and then come back and we'll break your water and we'll just sort of see where it goes from there. And so yeah, once once they properly I think what had happened is my my waters had broken a little bit and I think Dilly's head had sort of plugged plugged the hole in the uh, and then it was like yes that was just a nudge you needed and um so sort of in a in a sort of little side room and then and then it started to to go quite quickly and I'm thinking, this is intense I can't do this for like six hours yeah. <laughs> like, and then I was kind of like come can we get in the pool and they gave me this really weird look and I remember thinking oh should I not have asked or like what what's wrong they were like no no well I'll, yeah I'll go, I'll go and run I'll go and run it what I now know is that they were thinking I'm not sure you're not you're gonna, gonna make it <laughs> you're not gonna make it by the time the pools run but I did just about so then I had this lovely kind of water birth I wasn't in the pool for very long it does I think it does slow it down slightly when you get in there Dilly was born in the pool and it was all you know I had had like a homeopathic kit as well and I just remember being I'm, I'm, I knew the one for like anxiety was just like get me get me some get me aconite or whatever it was it's like just give me this and, and it, but it was like about two hours in total from sort of popping my that's amazing my water and, and her being there so like completely the opposite to in, in almost every way to what happened with Ted but but that was really healing and it was just yeah. what I needed and it was just kind of like couldn't have gone better and just felt like it kind of yeah healed and sort of closed up something sort of closed a chapter and was just what I needed really yeah that's absolutely I'm just in awe of you being able to kind of enter into that zone again and you know take yourself back where obviously you know we all know statistics and the likelihood of something happening again is so small but I imagine your brain must have just been in a million places and to be able to kind of go back there and have such a positive experience it probably helped that it was quick 
yeah definitely and and you know the hypnobirthing really did help it it did help to to calm me down and to let go of that and you know they're very specific when when you do I don't know if you've done hypnobirthing but for anyone who hasn't this isn't about giving you a natural birth this is about you having the ability to go with the flow of wherever your birth takes you and it not be a problem Mm -hmm. you know it's that it's that acceptance of whatever your birth is not stressing because they've said right you need to see section Mm -hmm. not stressing because this is happening and you know it's just having that relaxed clear mind and that ability to go with the flow and it just so happened that yeah I did end up having a very natural water birth but equally if that's not how it had panned out I can see that the hypnobirthing would have really helped me to navigate whatever it was going to be and I think that's really that's really important whether you know whether it's hypnobirthing or you know just finding a way for you to be okay with a situation that is not your number one preference that certainly I I found that that was the most valuable thing that I did in my pregnancy was give myself some preparation for not holding on to this has to be my experience yeah and and actually if it goes this way this way this way this way what are the parts of those things that I can have some control over or feel are positive regardless so yeah, yeah I I would highly recommend hypnobirthing anyway and yeah yeah, and obviously now you've kind of moved into a realm where you totally understand the power of that hypnosis side of things yeah exactly like you know just calming down that that fight or flight response now I uh, yeah now I really understand why it was so effective and why it's so good yeah um I'm just I'm so glad that I chose to do that yeah it was it was a real kind of game changer but but even still I remember then you know when they when they got Delhi out of the pool I was still a bit like is she okay is she okay tell me she's okay you know just I had to know so quickly that everything was fine and that okay now (laughs) waves of relief I'm sure when she was with you and yeah 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 well they're just like you said two complete opposites both so so deserving of you know people learning about those experiences so um yeah thank you so much for sharing your stories is there anything that actually um that you would maybe give any sort of advice to anyone who maybe is facing a similar situation for what you went through with Ted's birth is there any is there anything that really helped you in in the initial period or it's okay if there wasn't (laughs) one thing that really helped me is one of my work colleagues sent me a card which said um and I now know it's a John Lennon quote that everything will be okay in the end and if it's not okay it's not the end Mm. and you know things can feel very difficult and dark when you're faced with something you weren't expecting and something that actually is made out to be really difficult and dark by the kind of cultural narratives and you know we live in a very kind of ableist society and when I had Ted I couldn't think of anything worse than him being in a wheelchair I thought god Mm. that's it all of our lives are over he's in a wheelchair he's going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life and that is like the least of our worries and actually if there was a little bit more positivity about disability and disability representation, I don't know if it would have felt so dark and horrible. Yeah. Um, and it, it's it's never going to be as bad as you imagine it. You know, you just get on, you just, you, you accept. I don't know if I'm really answering the question. You, as with any baby, you love and accept your baby and your child for the person they are. Mm. And that is regardless of 
however they present, whether they have learning difficulties or medical difficulties or disabilities, or you accept that in the way that you accept that they've got brown hair or blue eyes or, you know, whatever. And life can be fun and happy and rich and whole. And it, it can feel in the beginning that, that you won't get that kind of a life, but you, you, you really can. It's just a different way of being a family. It's a different path to tread, but it's not, it's not worse and it's not automatically terrible. You know, there are challenges, but actually I realize that everyone has incredible challenges. I don't, I don't know many people who have like very stereotypically normal children without any like trauma or difficulty in their family. Yeah. I'll be honest, I feel like actually everyone's got a kind of untold story. If there's any inkling, or even if there's not, that, that some, there might be someone to blame, that sounds terrible. I think it's always worth getting these things checked out because if, you're, if your child does have significant needs, it definitely does help to have extra things in place to support you with that yeah um and even if you know even if it doesn't turn out that that's the case perhaps it's worth investigating just to give yourself that closure and that acceptance of yeah it's just one of those one of those things but it's it's a strange thing to embark upon the whole legal thing Mm. but but it's also a means to an end and it, it does it is important well I think that's all really reassuring, lovely advice and just kind of hearing kind words like that, I think is going to be really helpful for anyone who's kind of potentially facing the situation that you did or maybe has a loved one, you know, to kind of get that kind of understanding from your perspective is really, really valuable. So thank you so much. Pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's been so great. Thanks so much, Emma, for your openness and honesty. It's so rare that we get to hear the real stories of people who have babies born with disabilities or birth-related injuries. These conversations aren't easy. In fact, they're so hard. Often we just don't know what to say, so we don't say anything. More representation of all kinds of media, including podcasts, is one way in which we can all start to understand families' experiences a little bit more. I hope somewhere someone listens to Emma's story and finds solidarity, comfort, feels educated or can feel connected in some way, knowing that they or their loved one is not alone. If you enjoyed today's episode or know someone who would, please do share. If you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you use, that would be amazing. It helps me reach even more people. And if you want to follow me, I'm on social media, Instagram and Facebook under The Real Birth Podcast. That's all for this week. It was great to be with you. Join us again next week for another episode and I will see you then. Bye.